The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. I'm excited to uh, get into the Gospel of Luke with you. It's always an awesome thing to look at the life of Jesus. Uh, anybody wondering why we're starting in chapter 3? Okay, The reason is because I've preached chapters 1 and 2 here several times. And so if you want to hear them again, you can go on the website. Also, it's not Christmas. Are you allowed to talk about baby Jesus when it's not Christmas? I'm sure you are, but we're going to start right at Jesus' public work. So by this time in chapter 3, it's been 30 years since the angels sang to the shepherds. It's been 30 years since the old priest, Zechariah, had a vision in the temple and couldn't talk for nine months. It's been 30 years since uh, his elderly wife, Elizabeth, had that miraculous baby. It's been 30 years since the Virgin Mary laid her baby in the manger. And so the question arises for the reader, well, you tell me, how do you like it when somebody makes you a promise and you have to wait 30 years? When's it going to happen? Is God really going to keep his promises? And by the way, that's the same question Israel as a whole would be asking right now. Is God really going to keep his promises? How many of you have asked that question in your life? Is God really going to come for me? Is he really going to keep his promises? Is he really going to work in my life? And that's what we're thinking about as we hit chapter 3 in Luke this morning. So I was just wondering, if you want God to come and keep his promises, what's it going to look like when he does that? What does it mean for you in responding to it when God comes? That's what we're going to consider today. i got three things to think about with you from the text. Number one, what happens when God comes? Number two, how do you get ready for God to come? And number three, how has God come already, and how should you respond to it? So number one, what does it look like when God comes? Number two, how do you get ready for God to come? And number three, how has God come already, and what should your response to that be? So are you ready to think about God coming? Good. Me too. Let's begin right away. Verses one to two. Now, aren't you proud of Marcia as she read all these names and cities? Um, and weren't you glad it wasn't you? Yeah. Luke begins his section with a list of political leaders of the day. Um, why? First thing I want to mention is, uh, and it's worth remembering, did you know that the, uh, Dr. Luke here is one of the greatest of all ancient historians? So I got a picture for you. Uh, here he comes. You ready? This is not Dr. Luke. Um, that would be far too old to have a picture of him. This is Sir William Ramsey. He uh, was a Scottish archaeologist and New Testament scholar, uh, professor at Aberdeen, three honorary fellowships from Oxford colleges, nine honorary doctorates from British Continental and North American universities. He was knighted in 1906 for his scholarship. The reason I bring him up, because uh, originally he was a skeptic of the New Testament. And so he put Luke and Acts on trial to see if Luke would hold water as a historian, and this is what Sir William had to say. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. Sir William uh, became a believer. So just to show you, uh, as we go through Luke, we're going to see him throw out all these details, and for us as modern readers, you're like, I don't, I don't know what this is or, or what's going on here. But let me just tell you, as historians uh, measure up the Gospel of Luke, he seriously is one of the greatest historians of the ancient world, and all the facts line up. And over and again, he's been shown to be trustworthy, which, you know, just the, the bottom line as we look at this, at this Gospel is, Luke is sending you a message about Jesus, and he's grounding it in the blood, sweat, and tears of real history, and he's telling you from chapter one, you can believe this, it's certain, it's real. I'm not writing you myth, I'm not writing you legend, I am writing you actual history confirmed by eyewitnesses. That's what he's saying. And so that's the first thing I want to give to you as we hear this list of rulers. Yeah, these were the people who were ruling at this time. But the thing, second thing to see is, I mean, do you think, wrote, do you think Luke wrote it like this? You could be like, wow, he, he knows a lot of rulers. Is that his point? Well, no, that's not his point. Uh, what is his point? Why does he give us this list in verses 1 to 2? Well, to get to that point, 
I really want to back up with you for a moment. I want to remember the storyline of the Bible. So I'm really backing up. I want to remember with you the storyline of the Bible. Um, okay, Christians, what's ultimate reality? Where does it start? God. God, the eternal God. What do we know about him? He's beautiful. Uh, every good thing is from him. He's wise. He's powerful. Creates everything by the word of his power. Not only that, he's the authority, right? He's made everything so everything belongs to him. Okay, so that's what we know about God. What do we know about humanity? What was the best part of God's creation? It's, it's, it's human beings. It's male and female represented by Adam and Eve, and they were made to enjoy him and to love him and to love one another as they lived according to his design. Next question, what's our problem? Why are we so messed up? Does anybody doubt that, right? We're messed up. We know what happened in Florida this week. We know what's happening all over the world every day, all the time. We know what's happening in us. We're messed up. Why? Adam and Eve rebelled. They, did, they wanted to de-God God. They said, we don't want to submit to you or trust in you or be satisfied in you. We can do it better. Get out the way. We'll determine what's right and wrong ourselves. We'll make ourselves happy our own way. We'll live the way we want to live. It's called sin, and it's, it's suicidal. We ruin ourselves. Not only that, we deserve God's wrath because he's a just God. So God is beautiful, he's holy, he's the authority. We are made in his image, we're beautiful, and yet we're broken. God is kind. And right there, as soon as Adam and Eve fall into sin, he makes a promise that because he's so kind, he says, I'm gonna reconcile the world to myself. I'm gonna bridge the gap that has been created here. I'm, I'm gonna bring people to myself. And you know how he begins, how he starts this story of salvation? He chooses a moon worshiper from the city of Ur. You remember what his name is? Abraham. Abraham. So he starts with a guy who totally doesn't deserve his love at all. Read the stories, right? And he says, Abraham, I'm going to love you and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you my grace. Even though you don't deserve it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. I want you to put your faith in me. I want you to devote yourself to me. And as you do that, Abraham, I'm going to save you and I'm going to build in you. I'm going to build you a family. And as I build that family, that family's gonna become a nation. What do we call them? Israel. And out of that nation, there's gonna be a king. And that king is the one who's gonna come and he's gonna fulfill all these promises of reconciliation and salvation. The king's gonna come and he's gonna save. And so amazing promises, right, to Abraham, to his family, to Israel, that through this king, through this people, God would save. And so as the king would come, he'd change the people's hearts and they wouldn't rebel and sin anymore and they'd want to love God, they'd want to love their neighbor. He'd give them a land and there'd be righteousness and there'd be peace and there'd be justice and hopefully the whole world could look at them and see this is what God can do in people. Let's go, let's turn to him. And through that people, uh, all, all the world would see the beauty of God. That was the goal, that was the goal. And then Luke says, in verses 1 to 2, look what's happened. Look what's happened. Does Israel, at this time Luke is writing this, have a great king who's leading all the nations to God? No, he mentions Herod. And we could go into lots of details about, Herod, about what Herod was like, but I'll say this, brutal and corrupt. He's, he's not the king they were looking for. He mentions the priesthood. There's two of them. One of them won't let go of power. We could go into lots of details. We'll see it later in the Gospel of Luke. But are these priests faithful teachers of God's word? Are these priests living for the glory of God and wanting to, wanting to see the nations come? Or No, two words. Brutal and corrupt. Not only that, is Israel a light to the, nation, to the nations or is Israel under the thumb of the nations? Who's really in charge? Well, locally, it's Pontius Pilate. Have you heard that name before? Jesus will be crucified under his hand, and that's the, the pagan leader over the area. What can we say about him? He's brutal and corrupt. Moreover, that, moreover who's, who's the great authority over all of this? Caesar Tiberius. We could go into lots of details about him. I could give you two words. Brutal and corrupt. The reason Luke is giving you this list of rulers is to show you the context of how Israel is doing. And the measurement is, it's terrible. It's a mess. 
And so you think back at the big picture of God's storyline, right? He's going to reconcile the world through these people and through this king. And if you're sitting in this situation, 30-something A.D., and you're looking at the situation, where, did God promise, where does God's promises go? What are you thinking? Is he ever going to come? Is he ever going to save? Is this ever going to work? It's a total wreck. That's what Luke's telling you. But Luke's going to tell you something else as well. Look at verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, what's that next phrase? The word of God came. You realize at this point in history, it's been 400 years since there was a prophet in Israel? 400 years. There hasn't been a new word from the Lord. It's longer than our country's been in existence. 400 years it's been silent. And then if you're reading this, you, you know what this sounds like. Every prophetic book in the Old Testament has something like this. The word of God came to this prophet. Listen up. God's about to act in history. His word never comes just as in doing nothing. God's about to act. He's about to speak. He's coming. The word of God came. And guess who it came to? If you read chapters 1 and chapters 2, the special baby born to the priest, Zechariah, Elizabeth. It came to John in the wilderness. God's coming, and look what verses 3 and 4 say. He, that's John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, what's that phrase in verse 4? As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So Luke is saying, the word of God came to John around 30-ish A.D. And that word of God coming to John fulfills the word of God written in Isaiah. Uh, when in history did Isaiah write? Anybody know? About 700 years prior to this. So anybody struggle with patience sometimes? Okay. This prophecy took... 700 years to be fulfilled. Do you think people ever doubted if it would ever come true after 700 years? I mean, I have a hard time waiting, what, a week for something? 700 years. And, and, and Luke is saying God's promise in Isaiah from 700 years ago is happening right here, 30, 30 AD-ish, right here. God keeps his promises it's happening now, Luke is saying. Now look at this promise we see from Isaiah that's being quoted here in Luke. It in, starts in verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, and what's the voice say? Prepare the way of the Lord. So just stop right here. Uh, the first part of this promise is someone's coming. Someone's coming. Who is it? The Lord is coming. Who's that? That's God. That's the creator of heaven and earth. He's going to visit. He's going to come right here. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. What is the Lord going to do when he comes in verse 6? All flesh shall see. What is it? The salvation of God. He is going to keep those promises that he's made to Abraham, to Israel, to the world. He's coming to save. But what's going to happen when he comes? Verse 5, everything's going to be turned upside down. Everything is going to be turned upside down. What happens to every valley? Verse 5, see a valley's low, right? A valley gets filled. What happens to every mountain and every hill? They're high up. What, are, what happens to them? They're made low. Everything's turned Upside down. The way is made smooth. God's going to come and he's going to turn everything upside down. And you know, as you're reading Luke, it reminds you of Mary's song back in chapter 1. When the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a child by the Holy Spirit. It's going to be the very Son of God. Mary responds with this song. I want, I want you to see a few verses of it. Look at Luke 1, 51 to 55. Luke 1, 51 to 55. She says, God has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So number one, you see Mary is a theologian. She knows the storyline. She knows God has made promises to Abraham and she knows he's gonna keep them through the king that is coming. But she also says, as God is gonna come to save, everything's gonna be turned upside down. In Isaiah, we see mountains getting low and valleys getting high. What do we see in Luke 1 when Mary sings? Who's coming down? The prideful, the powerful, the comfortable. Who's coming up? The poor, the weak, the hungry, the humble. Do you see why we're calling this series the upside-down kingdom? The king is coming and everything gets turned upside down. Um, a friend of mine showed me a video from The Onion. You guys know what The Onion is? It's like satire, okay? And it's a video of this guy who has an interview with God. It's hilarious. You should look it up. And the guy is all stately and put together. And today we have a wonderful opportunity. I will be, I will have, I have the exclusive rights to an interview with God. And, you, you know, you're imagining, okay, how are they going to do this? You know, God's going to come and sit in the chair, and they'll drink coffee, and how's this going to work? And so the, the guy begins kind of like, we thank you so much for coming to this interview. And then all of a sudden, the video changes, and he goes, ah! And he's electrocuted, and the next thing he says is, I'm sorry! And he's, and he's freaking out, and it's, it's awesome. You need to watch it. But it, it has a really great point. You know, we're like, God, when are you going to come? God, how can you do things the way you do them? God, really, and we're kind of complaining, and we're kind of, you know, God, I don't know about you. I don't know. I'm not really sure. What would it be like, folks, if God really came and sat down with you? What would it be like? Would you have any demands to make? Would you have, would you have any complaints to offer? Or would you be kind of like that guy in the Onion video, or like Isaiah in chapter 6, on the floor, coming undone? And, and this is real because God's promise is, I'm coming. And his warning is, you might want to humble up. If you're, pri- if you're prideful and self-oriented and it's all about you and you're living for your own comfort, when God comes, you come down. If you're hurting and you're needy and you're dependent on God and you're looking to him and you say, your way is all I want, you are all I want, I'm yours completely, Be encouraged, because you're coming up. But when God comes, everything gets turned upside down. Now, he will come. He comes to save. He keeps his promises. But be ready. Humble yourself. And that really takes us to the next part of this passage. How do you get ready for God to come? And we see what John is saying in verse 3. John went into the region all around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's really strange that John would ask good practicing religious Israelites to get baptized. It would kind of be like, what it, would, it would kind of feel like this if I was like, hey y'all, um, all your Christian life, all your baptism before this, it didn't matter at all, you need to get baptized again right here. How would most of you feel if I did that? You'd be like, No. Okay? You'd at least be offended. I would, I would be saying that your old life wasn't nearly good enough. It wasn't right. Something new is coming. You have to realign yourself. Now, I'm not going to say that because we're Christians. <laughs> um, but for John's context, that's how it would feel. And the baptism he's calling for, it's, not, it's a precursor, right, to Christian baptism. We don't know about Jesus dying on the cross or rising from the dead yet at this point in history. But yet, John is saying to religious Jews, you need to come away from all of that, and you need to repent. What? If you had to uh, explain repentance to a six-year-old, what would you say? What's it mean to repent? It means to turn. You're turning away from one thing, away from what's wrong. You're turning away from following false kings, following false gods, bad behavior. You're turning away from that. You're turning to something better. You're you're turning to the rightful king. You're, You're turning your life over to God. That's what it means to repent. It's to turn. And so John is saying to these 
to these religious Jews, you need to turn to the true God. How do you do that? Well, we're going to see that in verses 7 to 11. And I think the main thing you're going to see is repentance means change. Repentance means change. Turn. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. (laughs) What did he call them? You brood of vipers. Someday I've got to try this. You, you all sit in, we'll get done with the first song, and I, you know, I won't even, I'll just, I'll just point at you and say, you snakes! You're all snakes. Again, how would you feel? You, who are you? You're the snake. All right. Well, is he supposed to say this? Is John truly the prophet? He is. Look at what he says. You brood of, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hey, what's one thing we find when God comes? There's wrath. He's a just God. He's a holy God. Look at verse 8. He says to them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Stop just talking. Stop just listening. Start acting. And then look at what he says next. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So what is he pointing out in his audience? What are they relying on to make themselves right with God? They're relying on, hey, I'm, I'm a Jew and I went to synagogue. Don't rely on that. And then he says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What is, what is John getting after? Well, it sounds like he thinks they're presumptive. You know what it means to presume something? Um, to just assume. Because you said something once or you went to a meeting once, it's, it's assuming you're real. And he says, you need to change how you see yourself. You need to change how you see yourself. What's the first step to real repentance for this audience? What does he call them? Vipers. So he's telling them to repent of their goodness. Repent of your goodness. They'd have come out being like, of course I'm God's people. I'm I'm a member of Israel. I I go to synagogue and I've I've done the temple thing too. And and John says, if you rely on that, um, you have no hope. In fact, you need to come to terms with the fact that you're there's some viper in you. You guys have any viper in you? Any snake coiling up, selfish, vindictive, evil, mean? You need to come to terms with who you really are. Um, is it enough to just know facts about Jesus and go to church sometimes? Is that enough to make you right with God? Is that, is that enough to know that uh, he's pleased with you? So he, want, he wants us to question, are we just formal Christians? Uh, be honest about your own viperness, your sinfulness, and, and be worried a little bit about formality. Change your view of yourself, but who can make you a true child of Abraham? Who can make you a true child of God? Well, God can do it with a stone. So if he can do it with a stone, he can also do it with a viper. He can, he can change you. He can transform you. He can bring you near. So to repent first is to see problems in yourself. It's to repent of your own sin. I'm a, I've got viper in me. It's to re- repent of formality. Oh, I'm a good person. I was nice once. I went to church once. I've heard of Jesus before. John's saying, that's not enough. That's not real repentance. So first, change how you view yourself. You need a work of God in your life. Not only that, you need to change how you live. Uh, How do you feel about the illustration of fruit? What do you learn about that? I suppose if you're an excellent scientist, you could go and take apart a piece of a tree and look at its whatever and tell me what makes it an apple tree. For stupid people like me, um, I rely on more simple ways. If I'm walking through an orchard and I want to know what kind of tree it is, 
the, the thing that's going to be easy for me is if I see an apple growing on the tree, then I'm going to be like, that's an apple tree. Same thing with Christians. Same thing with Christians. God knows the heart. He can see your heart. He knows what you really are. I can't see into that. But the way the rest of us work is, you know how you can tell if somebody's a Christian tree? They got Christian fruit. They got Christian fruit. And so he's saying, look at your fruit. And he says, look carefully, right? Because we want to be careful that we're not just formal. We want to be careful that we're not just formal. And so he says, um, look at the fruit. And then he's using scary words, right? The ax is laying at the fruit of the trees. A tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and goes in the fire. What's that illustration mean? It at least means this. When Jesus comes back, you don't want to realize that you were fake and formal. You don't want to be that person. And so passages like these are are helpful to us to help us examine ourselves and look and see. Have we repented? So we've got to repent. We've got to turn. It starts with a change in how you view yourself. I'm a sinner. I don't just want to be formal. I need something more. You've got to look at how you live, fruit. And so you hear the crowds, right? Look at verse 10. The crowds ask him, well, what do I do? That's what I'd be asking him too. What do you want me to do? Look what he says in verse 11. He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Wow. This is an upside-down kingdom, right? If you live in America and you have two tunics, what's your goal? Three tunics. And then what's your goal? Four tunics, and then 4,000 tunics, and then you sell the tunics, and you, and you sell them for more, and you, you get more tunics. And Luke's gonna tell us about, the, uh, about a guy like that later on in this gospel. And he's got barns so full of stuff, and he's like, now I can just kick it. Retirement, it's gonna be fun. And, and, uh, and he dies that night, and the first words he hears are, you fool. You were rich in this world. You were poor towards God. Upside-down kingdom, an upside-down kingdom. Something happens in your heart. You find this new contentment somehow in God himself, and you see somebody with no tunic. You got two tunics. What are you doing? You're giving away your tunic. I'm challenged by this. I'm challenged by this. Are you challenged by this? Fruit that you know Jesus is generosity to the poor. It's a concern for, for justice. Uh, next, next group starts talking, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Now, that's just awesome. You know how Jews would feel about tax collectors. A tax collector goes to the corrupt Roman government and pays money for the right to collect taxes. And then once you have that right, you put up your table, and you can collect whatever you want from your village, and anything over the minimum you're supposed to give to Rome, you get to keep for yourself. So tax collectors are traitors, and they're extortioners, and they're wicked. And they came to hear from John. And they're repenting. And when they say, uh, what should we do? Does John say, get out of here. You're a tax collector. You're too bad to be here. No, he doesn't say that. He welcomes them. Does he say, you have to quit your job? No. He says, keep your job, but be entirely different in your job. Look what he says to them. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. What should we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. No more cheating, no more swindling, no more of this self-orientation, fairness towards others. Again, it's a generosity. It's a love for justice and treating people rightly. Verse 14, soldiers ask him, and we, what should we do? Again, does he say, soldiers, you can't come here? No. Does he say, soldiers, you can't be a Christian and be a soldier, quit your job? No. He says, go back into your job and be totally different in how you do it. How so? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. That's fruit. Anyone can come, right? Tax collectors can come. Soldiers can come. That's good news for you and me. What does that mean? You can come. 
Does he want to take you out of your life, quit your job, go be a monk in the hills? No, go back into your life, but be totally different. Anyone can come, but nobody stays the same. Because you find some new contentment, some new satisfaction in God, which enables you to be sacrificially generous to others and concerned for justice in your relationships. That's fruit right here. That's fruit. Another thing we think, I think we see in verses 18 to 20 is what happens to John. When it comes to repentance, what happens to John? John is a, is a prophet, and he's telling the truth, and Herod was a bad guy, and Luke doesn't go into the depths of the story, but John calls Herod out for his evil and wickedness, and guess what happens to John as a response to that? He goes to prison, and later he's going to get his head cut off. And that, folks, is your prophet of repentance, which means that when you repent, and you get a different view of yourself as a sinner in, in need of God, and you're, and you're done with formalism, and you really want to belong to him, and you start working on fruit in your relationships, guess what you might face? Opposition. There's going to be difficulty. But that's how we get ready for God to come. So when God comes, let's just back up, grab the basics. When God comes, what happens? Everything's turned upside down. So what, what should your attitude be in that? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. How do you get ready for God to come? One word starts with R and ends with repentance. <laughs> repentance. What does repent mean? Turn. Turn to him. Turn to him. Repent of, of your view of yourself. See yourself as a dependent sinner. You need the grace of God to save you. And then also, look at your life, your fruit. Don't just be formalistic. Make sure your heart is his and it's coming out, not that you leave your life, but that you're different in your life. Specifically in genero self-giving generosity, uh, kindness, love, justice for others. It's very challenging, isn't it? How do we do this? Well, now we need to see that God has come. God has come. Look at verses 15 to 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So what are they thinking? Hey, this guy's pretty good, right? Everybody's going out to hear him. Uh, he's amazing. He's, he's changing things. Um, maybe this is Christ, the promised king. Remember that biblical storyline? God's gonna save the world through Abraham, the family, the nation, the king, that's the Christ. Maybe it's John. Maybe it's John. And what does John say? Verse 16. It's not me. And when he comes, I don't even deserve to wash his flip-flop. I don't deserve to untie his sandal. Now listen, uh, in this text, how great is this person John the baptizer. How great is he? Jesus will say he's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. There's nobody that's been as faithful, as passionate, um, as beloved by God as far as a, human, a normal human being goes than John. And John says to you, listen, I don't even deserve to untie the one who's coming to untie his sandal. That was the job of the slave back then. That would be, it would be kind of like saying, I don't deserve to clean his toilet. I don't deserve, um, I don't deserve to do the lowest, most menial thing for the one who's coming. What does that tell you about the one who's about to come? He's awesome. He's awesome. He's, a, he's on a different level, the one who's coming. Look what John says about him. I baptize you with water. But he who is, and what's that next word? Mightier than I. He's coming. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is saying the one who's coming, he's so precious. He's so valuable and he's so powerful. This is the one who can actually change you and enable repentance. This is the one who can actually save you and make you right with God. 
He's also saying the one who's coming, this is the one who can and will judge the earth and restore all things. This is the one. Wow. When's he coming? Who is this man? Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is one of the most beautiful, fundamental moments in all the Bible, where God gives you a glimpse of himself in such a massive way. You see here in these few verses the nature of God himself. He's showing us. And you see here in these few verses the nature of Jesus Christ. And you see here the one to whom, the only one, who deserves your full repentance. This one right here. This is the one. Let's look. Jesus is baptized. Now, if you can imagine the scene, who's coming out to be baptized? Everyone. Who's in this crowd? Tax collectors, soldiers. And in there somewhere, it would be like, where's Waldo? You ever played that book? You know, all the people, where is he? And there's Jesus. You think he's glowing or anything as he walked in the first time? Did he come in like Superman, you know? And he, and he lands and the earth shakes. Uh, no, no, no. You couldn't tell. There's nothing different. He's fully human. He gets baptized. But then God wants to say something. He wants to make sure this crowd and you and I and everyone ever knows something. So listen, this is what he's doing and he's showing you. Number one, verse 21, the heavens were opened. Now I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what that is like. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never seen it. You have to imagine, what is the point here? It's some visible way of seeing that God is coming near. Everybody's seeing, this is different. This is really different. What's happening? The heavens are opened. The next thing you see, the Holy Spirit descends, and he says, like a dove. Let me help you. Um, is the Holy Spirit a bird? No, thank you. But we have a dove here. Why like a dove? Why like it? L listen, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's always had the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to see this? This is the Father coming to the beginning of the ministry of his Son and the Holy Spirit coming down visibly so we all go. Listen, you remember, remember what Isaiah says about the Christ? He's going to be anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, it says in Isaiah. And we're going to see, was there any wonder, who is getting, getting anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit right here so that we can all see it? There he is. There he is. It's Jesus. He set aside his divinity. He's living as a human, a faithful human, and he's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you hear these words. You hear these words from the Father. Oh, can you imagine? I wonder what it's like for Jesus. I'll, I'll never know. Um, as Christian thought, as we've encountered the scriptures, uh, we say it like this. It's trustworthy. Jesus is one person, right, with two natures. God is going to say here, this is my beloved son. How long has Jesus been the beloved son of God? Forever and always. He's fully and totally and absolutely God. And yet, as Jesus walked in to be baptized, he's got 10 little fingers and 10 little toes. He's fully human. And he's beginning his ministry, and it's going to come hard, and it's going to come fast. And what is he receiving from the Father? The promised Spirit. And what is he hearing from his Father? Everyone should hear this from their Father. Everyone should hear this from their father. And some of you haven't, and it's scarred your life. Everyone should hear this from their father. And Jesus hears it from his father in heaven. And what does his father say? You are my beloved son. 
What's beloved mean? I love you more than words can say. I've always loved you. I'll always love you. You are my beloved son. And then what does he say to him? With you, I am well pleased. That's so important, because why do people get baptized? The only reason you ever need to get baptized is if you're a sinner. I need to repent. I had a woman call me a long time ago and ask me to baptize her dog. It's one of my favorite conversations. And uh, I felt like I was filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. I said, ma'am, your dog doesn't need to be baptized. God is not mad at your dog. God made your dog to be a dog, and your dog has done a wonderful job of being a dog ever since he was conceived. You, however. (laughs) See, there's always a way. There's always a way to share the gospel. Baptism is for people who need to repent. Baptism is for people who've messed it up and who need to be forgiven and who need to be changed. And so for Jesus to get baptized, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He's, he's the beloved son. Why does he hit the water of repentance? And the Father is telling you something. With him, or as he says to Jesus, with you, I am what? Well pleased. You didn't need to be baptized. Everything about you is perfect. It's wonderful. I couldn't be happier. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who's taken on human flesh. Why is he here? Why is he here? Why is he here getting baptized next to tax collectors and soldiers? Why is he standing in a crowd full of snakes? Why is he walking our path? You'll see it through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, and don't you know this, believers? He's living a perfect life in human flesh. He's the one who generously gives himself up for the needs of others. He's gonna die on a cross, not for his own, or not for his own sin. Why, people? For your sin. For my sin, and the one who is the beloved son will say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we sang it this morning. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. Jesus died on the cross, the beloved son, in your place. He rose from the dead in vindication. And for all who trust in him, what he's done is ours. It reminds us of Christian baptism. The water stands for your connection with Christ's death. Your old life is dead. You've repented. It stands for your connection with Christ's resurrection. You have a new life in him, and this promised spirit now comes, and you have the Holy Spirit changing you, giving you a new contentment in God and a love for him and a submission to him that turns into a love for your neighbor and a willingness to give up yourself For their sake, this is God's promised king. What does he deserve? He deserves your repentance. God has come, and he deserves your repentance. I want you to see a little bit from Luke 14, 25. Luke 14, 25. Uh, It starts with, great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds. I don't know what that's like. (laughs) Great crowds. But if you're a speaker and you got great crowds, you know what you need to keep doing, right? Keep pumping those people up and make the crowds even greater. That's for every great speaker except for Jesus. He's going to shrink his crowd. Look what he says. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, what's that next phrase? He cannot be my disciple. 
Do you feel the heaviness of that? The extremity of that? Verse 28. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So here's what Jesus is saying. You gotta count the cost. What's it mean to follow Jesus? What's it mean to be a Christian? Well, we're a little confused. I, I thought I was supposed to love my parents and my kids and all that stuff. Yeah, you are. Jesus is a Pharisee. He's teaching like a Pharisee. Uh, he says you're supposed to hate your own life. Are you supposed to be suicidal when you follow Jesus? No, that's, that's ridiculous. That's not at all what he's talking about. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. You've got to love me so much that every other love in your life looks like hatred in comparison to me. You've got to love me so much that you've signed over a blank check, your life, and it's his. You've got to be fully in. Now, we could get into things like, okay, I'm supposed to love my wife and compare, or hate my wife in comparison to Jesus. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, Ephesians 5, I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So am I supposed to hate my wife? Well, no, I'm supposed to love my wife. But I'm supposed to love my wife as a follower of Christ, which means I love him first. And I love her the way he tells me to love her. And I love her even when I don't feel like loving her. Do you see the difference? Are you supposed to love your kids if you're a parent? Yeah, but then in America, how do you love your kid? You make them entitled, and you get them an education so that they can be rich, and so that they can live for themselves all their lives. And Jesus would say, that's not loving your kid. The way you love your kid is you train them to love me, and to follow me, and to give themselves up for the world. Yeah, but that's hard. Do you want to be his disciple? Do you want to be his disciple? And so, count the cost, verse 33, who any of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All he's saying is, anyone can be mine, right? Anyone can come to me, tax collector, soldier, no matter how ruinous, how awful, how prideful, how disgusting, whatever you've done, doesn't really matter as far as this goes. You can come to me. Come on. I'll take you. Here's all you need. I become your everything. You can have me. I'm yours, he says. But I become your everything. And so I wonder, and this is challenging me. I don't see how it cannot challenge all of us. What is it in your life where Jesus, where Jesus would say, which part of this isn't mine? Maybe you wanted like an easy formality. You were hoping for a third road Christianity. I could do a little bit, but really just keep most of it for myself. And, and you hear Jesus saying, no. Maybe there's a practice or habit in your life, and, and you, know, you know he's saying, No. Or maybe, maybe um, for some of us, it's not sins of commission that we're doing, like bad things we're doing. We need to stop. Hey, if that's you, I hope God's telling you right now. But maybe it's sins of omission. You know there's good things he's calling you to do, and, and, and you're hesitant in it. Or maybe as you're sitting here, you're, you're thinking, I don't know if I'm a Christian at all. What do we need to do to have Christ? Just repent. Repent in your heart. Turn. Turn. Sign it over. Pray to him something like this. I want to be yours. Yours completely. Yours fully. I admit I don't know what, everything that that means. I, don't, I admit I don't know every way I'm supposed to do that. But I just want to tell you, Lord Jesus, that if you show me, put it on my heart. I want to follow you. I'm yours. For a lot of us, and we've talked together, right? Something like this happened in your life, and that's where the change was. You kind, you kind of did a, anybody like that in here? You kind of did a fake Christianity thing for a little bit and all of a sudden it, it dropped on you somehow. And you, it happened for me that way, junior year of college. And, and you just, I'm all, you become, I'm, I want to be all yours. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean we're always perfect or ever perfect. 
doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we're not sure sometimes. But it means that the attitude of our heart, the inclination of our heart is, I just want Jesus. And I want what he wants for me. And that's what he's calling you to. And you know, the way to get there is this. Here's the way to get there. What did the Father say about Jesus Christ? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Here's the promise of the gospel. If you'll repent and trust yourself fully to him, guess what the Father has to say about you? Guess what he says about you if you're in Christ by faith, trusting in him? He says, this is what he says to you. You're my beloved daughter. With you I'm well pleased because you're in Christ. He says, you're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased because you're in Christ. Forgiven all your sins, made right with God, called a child, adopted by God. Ah, wouldn't you just love to be loved and known by God in that way? And it's yours through faith in Christ, trusting yourself to him. Isn't that the resources for this new life? To be loved by God in Christ. When you see what you have in Christ, now when you see the one who doesn't have a cloak and you have two, you can say, you know what, I not only have two cloaks, I've got Jesus. I can give away a cloak. That's what changes your heart, to see his grace and his love for you. So folks, Isaiah came true back in 30 AD. What was the promise? There's gonna be a voice crying, and then God's gonna come. Who is the voice crying? John, and then God came, and who is God come? Jesus Christ. He's lived, he's died, he's risen. He reigns, he's gonna return. What's his call to us? Repent, turn to him. Know his love and live his love with all we are. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you for walking our shoes, for coming and giving yourself up for us. Lord, we pray you'd help us repent. Lord, you know where each one of us is right now in our minds and our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you could do something right now that I can't do. I don't know what to tell each person here about how to turn to you, but Holy Spirit, you can do that, and I pray for every person here right now, you'd be talking to them, and you'd be showing them what it is you want, you want from them, and that each one in here, we would have a soft heart and a broken heart, and we would say, I just wanna be yours, Jesus, whatever you want whatever you want, and we turn ourselves over to you completely. Lord, you're worth it. You're the beloved son. And in you, know, in you, we know the love of God forever. Thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.